Welcome to Change Hackers, providing daily insight and inspiration for people changing their world. I'm your host, Tony Cook, and I invite you to join me today in conversation with someone on the front line of driving change and transformation. My guest today is David Croft. David is Global Sustainability Director for Diageo, a leading global drinks company with brands like Smirnoff, Guinness and Johnny Walker, where he's responsible for their work on environmental and social sustainability around the world, working with farmers, communities and manufacturers within an international supply network. David has spent his entire career in food and grocery, having previously held senior roles at Waitrose, Kraft, Cadbury and the Cooperative Group. He's also a long-standing member of the Food Ethics Council. I spoke to David online from his office in London. Welcome to Change Hackers, David. Good morning, Tony. How are you? I'm very well. And yourself? Yeah, excellent. Thank you. All is going very well from the sustainability agenda's point of view and from a personal point of view. So um, lots lots going on. I think the, this, the world of sustainability is definitely gathering more and more momentum. And that's becoming more mainstream, which is great to see. Yeah, it feels like we're getting towards a tipping point, if not past it, in terms of the level of acceptance. Yeah, I mean, I think acceptance, not saying that's the right word, but certainly I'm getting the sense that um, the issues that we consider from a, a sustainability perspective are increasingly seen as influencing and driving mainstream. Um, and whilst we probably need to change the lexicon quite a bit, um, to help that to move faster. Um, the sense that um, what we might talk about from the impact of climate change um, is both impacting on um, the economies as well as individuals and their, you know, their lives, their perspectives, their interests. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned the lexicon because that's something I'd, I'd really like to dive into at some point. I think this whole business of the language, you know, how we how we articulate and how we get the message across to a very diverse audience. You know, you're responsible for doing this with a, you know, a large consumer facing company uh, with a, a lot of very familiar household name uh, consumer brands. It'd be great to understand, you know, how, how do you approach that? But before we do that, what I'd like to do is just sort of wind the clock back. You've been involved in this game for, you won't mind me saying this, hopefully, and I don't mean, I mean this in a flattering way rather than an <laughs> offensive way. Uh, you've been at this for a while um, and, uh, you know, you've shown a great deal of commitment throughout your career to the sustainability agenda, um, wearing a whole number of different hats. So what I'd love to do is just sort of get right back to the, you know, your earliest memories of why this mattered to you. Why did this become something you wanted to make personal? Um, I mean, I, didn't, I think when I first started my career, I'm not certain that the, the, the phrase of sustainability in the context of business or even in the sort of wider, uh, the way we look at the wider way we look at the world was really properly coined in the way that we try and understand it now. I mean, my, my interest came from um, really sort of two things and an interest in you know, psychology and, and why people think how they think and, and how that's really important to unlocking change. And then um, an interest in the environment at large, um, ecosystems, wildlife, nature in, in the broadest sense that, you know, at its start, and I remember on a Sunday evening in the UK, watching the world about us on BBC Two as a family. And it was you know, required family viewing, but fantastic insights into 
um, the way the world fits together. And now when I watch things like David Attenborough's Blue Planet, um, you sort of still see those, those themes running through. And it's great to see the level of passion and the level of interest that they create. And so you know, that, was, that was part of my childhood. And then when I began work, it was really at the front line of some of those environmental issues. I'd considered psychology as a degree, and then I had a, a fantastic opportunity um, to go and do environmental health uh, with local government um, in the town in Lancashire where I grew up in the north of England. And that really put me very much on the front line of what, what the environment and what we now call sustainability in the, the broadest sense of health, awareness of educational issues and health and environment and safety and the built environment, um, all fitting together and, and how it impacted upon people's lives. So my first summer um, as part of my uh, college course was spent in the hills around uh, Blackburn visiting farms and um, fairly remote um, households who relied on private water supplies, that's springs, wells, um, you name it. I mean, just water from the stream sometimes coming off the hillside and, and traveling around a fairly large and diverse um, uh, local authority area talking to people, taking samples of those water, that water, getting it analyzed, and then helping to find solutions. Met some fantastic people and saw some fairly scary um, situations that people weren't aware of. I mean, when a sheep has fallen down your water well, your water ain't good. And it sort of made me start to realize, so what do you then have to try and do to um, work with people and communities um, to, to make things better in that context? And that led on to, well, that was the first year of, 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 of my college course. And I ended up doing lots of stuff with lots of people from health awareness, health education, how businesses fit into local communities, spending time both you know, in farmers' kitchens talking about water supplies through to people's houses who'd had maybe food poisoning or food-related illnesses, investigating health and safety issues, accidents consumer complaints about properties, food, businesses, um, all the way through to boardrooms of you know, global businesses whose activities in a town impacted everything that people experienced in that town. And so, you know, it put me very much at the front line of what we now call sustainability. But what it also made me really aware of is that um, in some of those cases, in many of those cases, we knew what the solution might technically be. But the issue of how to make that happen and how to motivate people to change was often way more challenging. Right. And we were talking about very emotive issues about what you know, sustainability or the environment means to people. And, and that was the start of my career, really. And, and, and bringing those two things together was a particularly important part of, I would say, the grounding for what I did and continue to do in years to come. So just unpack that a little bit. So this idea that you, you nine times out of 10, 
technically could identify a solution but uh, you know the real challenge was in the, the the bringing people together to build trust to you know get collaboration effectively working that's clearly informed your approach from there on in just if, if we can for a minute just turn to uh, you know as, as a large employer the kind of people that you get coming through from universities now oh. do you see enough of a focus on an awareness around that or is, you know are people coming into the workplace with too much of a focus on on technical you know do you see them making the same same assumptions and mistakes that you maybe did when you were that sort of age um do you know it's funny i was talking to um a friend and a professor at oxford university only last week about this and one of the things that they are now starting to focus upon above and beyond the functional expertise is this ability to apply expertise and create um, a better understanding of systems, how systems fit together and how people form part of those systems. So that in a, in a work situation, you know, whatever type of organization it might be, private sector, public sector, civil society, doesn't really matter. But to be able to make those connections and understand the interdependencies and the motivators within a system. And I think that's really critical. And, and what he was telling me also was that in the two years they've been running this latest adjunct, which is a voluntary addition, for masters. Right, so it's you, not core yet. No, it's not core. This is an experiment. It's an experiment. I mean, they've got have some great government support and funding for it. But what they have seen is about a thousand master's students primarily go through this on a voluntary basis. And of those, the vast majority are more successful in terms of walking into jobs. And that's somebody from Oxford University saying that, which normally has a pretty high degree of success, I think. Uh, right. But it's this, for me, I mean, one of the things I see in business generally is lots of people with great functional expertise. But that's, you know, we're also looking for people with the ability to apply that. And not just into the context of what's the technical solution I then need in, a, in, in my company, but how do I make that technical solution land with the people who it will impact or with whom you're working with? Uh, that's the critical thing, um, because that's what makes for longevity in any organization. Um, you know, the, the changes with, that we've seen in the world of work over the last 20 years or so, I mean, that if you've got great functional expertise, that might get you in to do a particular project. But unless you apply that and are creating value for it for 52 weeks of a year, then at best you're an internal consultant. At worst, you're somebody who is called upon to do a specific project over a relatively short period of time that then the organization takes on and, and, and makes part of their own in the long term. And so for me, this, this ability to have um, and it, uh, to apply functional expertise and make it work to tackle a problem, to create value on an ongoing basis is really critical. And whenever I'm interviewing people for jobs, whichever organization I've worked for, I'm looking for people who have that potential, who will add value for the long term and grow within the organization as well. I, for me, it's important that there is, you know, 
benefits to both. And, and so part of the job often is to find people who, who have that potential and help them to realize it for themselves whilst realizing it for the organization that I'm part of. Right. So going back to your own experience of this, I mean, this is, this is experience sort of hard won. You're offering a sort of distillation of that now. But going back to when you were just getting started out, this occurred to you that actually you know, it wasn't the technical side that was the most important. It was, it was the softer side. You know, how did you then go about learning those skills? Where did you acquire them from? I've, you know, I've had some fantastic mentors um, over my career. When I first started working for the council, what I learned there with, with the help of um, a guy called Norman Morris, who was, you know, who led the health and safety agenda there, was the need to, to work with people, individuals, members of the public, consumers, as well as business leaders, and, and to be able to you know, build a conversation, build a rapport, and then help, that, help make things happen um, on what was you know, often a very emotive issue. Then when I was working at the co-op, what also came to the fore was how organizational systems can help you. Not in the sense, not, or certainly not only in the sense of providing um, or codifying activity, but implementing it in a way that is people-centric. So I, I spent some formative years around food manufacturing sites that the co-op owned, um, helping to um, implement ISO 9000, as it now is. But really thinking about, this is not, not just having a piece of paper and a system that everybody follows, it's actually having a system that people want to follow, because that then drives a total quality agenda, as opposed to a prescriptive system that people may want to find ways of avoiding. And, and what struck me then is that if you want things to happen, and happen consistently and that scale, a system is critically important but a system that understands how people will activate it and the motivations of people and the pressures that people have on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so designing a system that is able, well, first of all, that works for the individuals um, at a practical level and therefore also selling it so that they want to follow it because they see value from it as opposed to how you know, perhaps many systems around that sort of time were being evolved, uh, which were, well, this is the best system, this is what you all must do, even if they were not practical. And you know, I still see those things today um, coming through and people forgetting that at the heart of a system are the people who, want, who need to run it. And you know, systems aren't sold, change isn't sold. Um, and, and you get to a discussion around, well, what's, what's going to be effective change management? And, um, and that, you know, that was a learning from trying to um, develop quality assurance processes and systems that, um, that make it work. It sounds to me like you're incredibly fortunate in, in an early stage in your career, both working for a council and then working for the co-op, a very stakeholder-centric business mm. you had in both cases something of a baptism of fire into you know how do you bring people along you know whereas most people's careers start out in a very kind of introspective way you know sort of within the walls of an organization mm. and they don't get that external view so how, how instrumental do you think that was looking back in terms of forming your, your your approach oh incredibly so i mean i think um being 
being part of uh, two organizations that were you know, set up effectively in, in the case of the council to support the needs of, uh, uh, of everybody living in the town um, and being in a role that faced very much into the interests, the needs of those people, um, often at, at quite emotional times for them, made me acutely aware of, of how you need to bring people together to create um, change for the better, to, tack to tackle issues. And then in the same way at the co-op, um, both initially from the manufacturing point of view, and then when I was um, leading their um, customer relations helpline and setting that up, um, and, and growing the first consumer free phone number to a supermarket in the country, you got to listen, you know, in a privileged position, you were listening to what people said about the business, right. about the products, about what was going well, about what was going less well, about what you could change, about what you could improve. And actually, that type of insight that you get from talking to people has something that you know informs how you how you can build um, you know a better organization and a better contribution to as I see it these days to society um, and, and seeing that firsthand and having those conversations with individuals firsthand um, you know really brings that home um, you know whether I was you know, uh, answering answering the free phone to people about what's gone well with a, with a product, what's gone less well with a product, about just giving them some advice about answering their queries at the time about things like genetically modified foods, for example, which in the mid to end 90s were particularly uh, in the press in people's minds, um, gave you a real insight into um, how people, consumers, individuals, um, think about and were thinking about the issues of the day that they were seeing firsthand when they bought food from the co-op. Um, you know, the same was true working for the local authority because I was in contact with people who you know, needed you know, needed some support on some cases, something had happened, or or needed advice on on how to to make things work, have a safe water supply, for example. And that gives you a real understanding or understanding is too strong a word, it gives you an insight into what you need to consider um, to create hopefully effective solutions in the longer term. Yeah, and I guess it gives you a steer as well as an organisation in terms of what the strongest care abouts are, where, where the priorities are in terms of issues. Oh, very um, much. Very at much, least yeah. in terms of in terms of customers. So li listening to your account so far, I mean, you, you could be forgiven thinking all, all went well. You know, you, you learn a lot through these experiences you, you built on that. But, uh, you know, as with all people, there, there will have been mistakes made along the way. As you look back, what was the thing that held you back the most? Um, I mean, I think, you know, from a personal point of view, one of the things that um, I learned is the need to put your point of view forward and not be frightened of that, that it's not arrogant to have an opinion it's important to express your your opinions and and to um, so to make your case, but to do it in a way that is persuasive, makes a connection, and adds value. I think, particularly when you're starting out your career, it's easy to be a little bit overawed by 
people with massive amounts of experience. And it's easy to be a little bit of a wallflower in some conversations. And yet what I learned was you can't be too reticent. You're put in roles and jobs because people value what you bring. They value your insight. They value your expertise. They value how you do things. And therefore, they also value your opinion. And it took me a while to have the confidence, I think, to speak up as strongly as I should have done at an earlier stage. And yet, even if you think you know the answer, you know, or you, you feel you've, it's important to express your opinion and to do it, but also to do it in a way that is engaging and, 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 and has value. Um, I try not to say something if I'm not going to add more to the conversation in a, in a board meeting or issues like that. But if I've got something that will add value and is important to be heard, then it's, in, it's very important to speak out. And I think when you're starting your career, as I say, it's quite easy to be overawed by people um, who you look up to, who've got massive experience. And oftentimes um, you sort of wonder, well, what am I bringing to this? Well, I think, you know, my experience um, having gone through that is you're always bringing something. You bring a little bit of insight. You bring a slightly different perspective, a different way of unraveling a particular issue or a new way of joining the dots up that makes for a newly creative solution that somebody else will not have thought about. But there's a responsibility on, on the person you're in awe of to create a safe space for you to do that. You know, you and I can both remember a time when when large organisations were incredibly hierarchical, incredibly deferential, and there was a don't speak until you've spoken uh-huh. to kind of prevailing culture. Things have changed a huge amount. You know, young people entering the workplace now come into much flatter hierarchies, if not democratic, at least uh-huh. more inclusive. You change the communication and social intranets and so on, and the ability to, to you know, get your point of view across, uh, make your argument without reference to where you sit within the organisation and you know one one would hope the conditions to allow for that would be better now than they than they used to be i i I agree i i think that is the case but it still needs people to um to listen it still needs people to bring the best out of everybody in a team and uh, and to help people who may be a little bit more timid with their ideas to bring them to the fore and that's a skill that I think you acquire over time, but is critical, particularly in the flatter structures that we have in businesses and any organizations these days. And it's sort of, it's one of those sort of double-edged swords proverbially that it's important for leaders in businesses in those sorts of structures to bring everything they can out of people. And actually in a somewhat cyclical way, it's also important to have people in the organization who aren't working in a very narrow way but have the ability and the potential at least to see things in a broader holistic way and to make connections quite diverse connections Um, because in the flatter structures that we have you need it to work in that way uh, and and both to be you know bottom up and sideways and you name it in terms of how people can contribute to the organization and that's why i think you know increasingly we look for people with that breadth of skills rather than um, 
just an absolute functional expertise. I've seen a lot of people in large sort of matrix organizations really struggle with building influence and uh, and putting their views across mm. where they don't have direct line responsibility you know or sort of head counts you see a lot of people stumble on that you know how do you build that influence how do you you know drive change where you don't have formal authority uh-huh. or status but you bring people along with you mm. what what's your lessons learned on on achieving that well i mean i i I, I started to appreciate that very much when I was at the co-op and I was you know, working across a number of functions um, from a, a technical function, a brand leadership function, a customer-centric function. But it became much more clear when I um, joined Cadbury and I was working on a global basis, picking up agendas about quality, about sustainability, about people safety, about supply chain effectiveness. That you know, even if you think just because you know that um, uh, you're at the heart of an organisation, you have to really understand what's going to motivate everybody who you come into contact with. You know what they need to deliver is just as important to remember as what you need to de- deliver um, to have those breadth of influences and opportunities to to make things happen. Just because you've got the word global in your title does not give you an all-seeing eye and certainly does not give you um, a a sort of proverbial right to make things happen. In in fact, far from it, the way I tend to look at it is entirely the other way around. The word global requires you to have an understanding of what everybody in the organisation needs to deliver for themselves and how to harness that um, and you know how to leverage that to create a whole that is greater than the sum of parts. And so when I was with Cadbury, if we had an issue in the UK, I needed to be able to cascade that to people around the world. But to do it in, in language and in tone and in style that was appropriate to local conditions, that was relevant to local circumstances, and that... Um, helped people in Australia, India, Brazil, wherever they might have been in the world, um, to strengthen what they were doing, learning from the experience that we might have had in another part of the world, in the UK, for example. Um, And finding the right motivators and the right tone was critical and continues to be critical um, in my current job to help that to happen. Um, Understanding what people need to deliver at a local level and how that contributes to the global goals and the global growth and the global success of the business is vital to making those things happen, but also to building a connection on a personal level. Mm -hmm. Because if you're a good few thousand miles away, increasingly the times that you will meet people face-to-face in person a few and far between. And rightly so, we shouldn't be traveling the world merely to have meetings that increasingly we can do just as effectively over, over a phone or a video conferencing system. But in order to do that, you've got to make a real connection with the people. And you know, that happens both at a business level, but it's also critical at a personal level as well. Do you think that's changed the way that we work at developing trust you know or, or do you think on the receiving side of it you, you're you know we're becoming more accepting of the development of trust 
via the likes of Skype and Zoom and that kind of thing, rather than needing the face-to-face? Look, I mean, I think face-to-face at times is, is, is absolutely critical. But trust comes not just from meeting somebody in person and shaking hands. Trust comes out of actions and what you do and how you do it and how you behave and whether you do what you promise to do and whether you go further than that. That's what creates trust. That's what creates engagement. That's what motivates people to want to work with you. Um, A nice face-to-face meet yeah, great to do, but it doesn't change the way people view you specifically because a few days later, a few thousand miles apart, if you haven't made that connection in a more meaningful way, then that relationship isn't there. And it doesn't matter how many times you meet people if you don't then follow things up and have those actions and and take that responsibility for making it work. The face-to-face meeting doesn't help. So deliver on your promises. Absolutely. Age-old golden rule. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it goes back to my interest in sort of what makes people tick and how, you know, how the psychology behind that is really important um, for building relationships, for understanding what people want for themselves, the what's right. in it for them part of the discussion, and helping them to deliver that as well as delivering what I or the wider organization might also need. The implication there is that there's a great deal of listening to be done before you start trying to communicate what, what message you have so you can adapt what you're saying to the audience that you're, you're speaking with. Uh, and in that sense, it's very closely related to consumer-facing communication. So if we can just return to this theme of sort of around the lexicons and the, the, me- the meta-narrative around sustainability, be it talking to trying to persuade an operations manager on on the ground in you know latin america or be it talking to a customer segment around one of your brands um you know how how do you go about um and and how have you seen the narrative around sustainability change um over the last few years you know how is it framed now compared to to how it used to be not too long ago the narrative around sustainability was um, more a narrative about philanthropy and charity and doing things for, for a, a better world in that sort of context. And then we went into a, a frame of corporate social yeah. responsibility that you, know, you mustn't let things get worse, proverbially. And you could actually make things better. But it was still an, a, a responsibility piece, which I think... You know, there is a moral imperative around some of the work that we do. But in order to motivate scale, I think we've got to get into how do we do things differently? And, and, and how do we leverage organizations and the way organizations and individuals operate and work and exist to create a more sustainable future? And that's sort of where the lexicon around sustainability currently sits. But proverbially, that's still got to disappear. That's got to evolve. That's got to get to a place where we actually don't see this as something different, something that's a bolt-on to a real, you know, the rest of the world, the real world. But it is totally um, second nature within that world. Um, and you know, in an, if I, if I do my job well, then whoever I'm working for doesn't need a, um, a chief sustainability person. Because actually, the ethos of the sustainability agenda is just another part of the lens 
through which we view what we do as an organization and how we maintain, sustain, and grow that for the longer term. And there's a parallel to this. I mean, if you've seen something that DuPont invented called the Bradley Curve around health and safety, and the Bradley Curve talks about this progressive shift from about understanding there's a safety risk and seeing lots of accidents through a um, through, through prescriptive control, which may not be particularly people-centric and maybe not that many people follow, and there's still lots of accidents, due to an independence context where individuals might have skill in, uh, skin in the game, but aren't necessarily um, looking out beyond themselves until you get to an interdependent phase where everybody is looking not just for themselves, but for the organization and everybody within it to operate in a safe way. And so that they would never walk past an unsafe act or situation. They would stop, put it right. And if they can't put it right, stop somebody else being impacted by it. You know, that type of evolution on safety is what I'd like to see from a sustainability point of view. And so that you're not you know, chasing people to say, here's a policy, you've got to follow this policy on whatever it might be. But when they're, but when they're designing a new product, implicitly, they know that it should have the right packaging that is recyclable and recycled in and of itself and is not environmentally degrading. Um, the products are designed in that way, the distribution networks are designed in that way, or supply chains. And so you're proverbially always starting to think about or building in a sense of inclusive growth, that the more we do as a business, the greater the contribution towards a more sustainable society and environment and ecosystem that we're part of. Because in doing so, then our organization will thrive, as well as the society and the ecosystem that we're part of will thrive. And if you, you know, if, if you noted that, I'm not talking just about businesses, I'm talking about any type of organization. And, and that's why I like the concept that I'm seeing now about the sustainable development goals because it does touch every facet of society. It took, it's a universal context, and it's not just a global South. It, it, it is totally global. But also, it reminds us, I think, that wherever you are in the world, whatever part of society you may be um, connected to or, or within, there are a whole range of issues that if we do them better, we will have a more sustainable, in the true sense of the word, a more sustainable future, a more sustainable society, and a society that thrives and prospers in the most holistic way. And this brings us back to how we do things differently. And, and SDG 17, you know, everyone you speak to about the, the SDGs, so, you know, the most crucial one in, in amongst them is the partnerships for the goals. Yes. You know, how, how... how do we work together to get that to happen? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and very... I mean, challenging because there are, you know, there are sadly relatively few areas of true scale collaboration in that way. And of course, it is um, a, a somewhat challenging area because it's where vested interests come to the fore. And my sense from some of the partnerships and collaborations I've been fortunate to be part of in the past 
for example, the work I was doing with Cadbury and that Mondelez has, has, has taken forward now on, on Coco, combining um, both a business context with the work of the governments in West Africa, uh, with the work of civil society and different local and international NGOs, um, with the United Nations in, in, in one, uh, one, one perspective, but most importantly, with farmers, farming families and farming communities, made it really clear from my point of view that you need to get the right people around the table. You have to be clear about what the vision is and paint a really compelling picture of a vision that people want to and can share in. But also, critical, you have to be prepared to compromise a little bit on what individually you might want because good partnerships only work if everybody gets most of the things that they want if one element gets everything then normally that means somebody else isn't getting everything mm. that they need mm. and so everybody's got to be prepared to give up a little bit and so when you set these things up i think it's really critical to be aware of what are the things you're prepared to compromise on and what are the things you can't individually or organizationally? And to be open about that from the start. Uh, and that's challenging because people tend not to enter partnerships being totally open, either personally or professionally, because you have to build trust. And that's when, going back to our earlier point, that's when some face-to-face -face conversation to help build that trust and then really follow it through robustly afterwards by sticking to your guns and being um, honest and delivering what needs to be said openly, um, but also doing the things that matter is critical. With that trust, with a shared vision, even if people are coming from very different start points, then I think you can make collaboration happen. But you've got to build that um, trust and openness because you're going to end up having some tough conversations and in one of my uh, other roles these days where I um, chair businesses input to the OECD development conversation through BIAC it's one of the things that is the toughest to get there you have to have very open conversations about some tough issues and the partnerships that I value the most are those partnerships where you can have those tough conversations, where you know that there is an open environment and people want to work alongside each other to create solutions. And I've been fortunate to work with some fantastic people in civil society, in the public sector and in business who you know, share a vision and and want to create solutions. I'm very much somebody who likes to create new ways of joining the dots up, of bringing people together differently to create a solution that's advantageous for everybody, that supports those thriving communities and that thriving ecosystem. And working with like-minded people is really uh, motivational from my point of view. And I see lots of those people in all over the world that I work 
with um, in civil society and the public sector, you name it. Um, but it's that solutions focus that matters. If you share a vision for what the world could be, of, of how you know, different organizations fit into it, then joining the dots up differently to make a really constructive, sustainable solution is motivating for many people. Getting those people around the table, building the trust, having the open conversations, having the honest discussion about what's manageable and what's achievable and what you can compromise on and what you can't compromise on. To unravel the tensions, I think, is really critical in making that collaboration work. And I, we just don't do enough of those things at the moment, I think, for goal 17 to be truly successful because it's, it's tough to bring that balance and to achieve that balance against some really... And these are quite sophisticated skills that people need to acquire as well. Well, do you know, the, the irony, I think, the irony, Tony, is they, are, they might be sophisticated, but at the same time, yeah. it's also common sense. Uh, <laughs> there's no rocket science in this. You don't need, you don't need a, a master's degree to do this. You need the ability to relate to people. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Tony. Good to talk to you. I'm your host, Tony Cook, and I'm on a mission to provide inspiration and insight for people changing their world. So check out changehackers.org to read show notes, guest blogs, and subscribe to access bonus content. Remember, this show's for you and change hackers like you. So drop me a line, tell me what you love, what you hate, or ideas you have for improving the show. And let me know if you know someone who'd make a great guest on this show. Maybe a friend, someone you work with, maybe even you. Just use the contact form at changehackers.org. I'd love to hear from you. Till next time, change hackers.